service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Marlon Brando are insane. He once broke a paparazzo's jaw with just one punch. He hired private investigators to find his son when a fake kidnapping went horribly wrong. He nearly sank an already doomed film shoot all by himself when he arrived in the Philippines overweight, underprepared, and demanding millions of dollars. He tried desperately to resuscitate his daughter's dead boyfriend in his own living room right at the moment he was trying to resuscitate his career. It was a career that produced great films, some of the best films in the history of cinema. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Paul Bees and his novelty orchestra performing Mystery in 1919. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Gary Marshall's Pretty Woman. And why would I play you that particular slice of my fair sex worker cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on May 16, 1990. And that was the day that Marlon Brando's living room was turned into a murder scene. On this episode, fake kidnappings, doomed film shoots, dead boyfriends, and Marlon Brando. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 7, Hollywoodland. The phone rang at Los Angeles 911 dispatch. The voice on the other end of the line was frantic and out of breath, but also familiar. The dispatch operator tried to get the caller to calm down. She asked his name, Marlon Brando. The operator asked Brando exactly what happened. He said the boy had been shot. He said it happened inside his home, the one on Mulholland. And now the boy was dead. Exactly what occurred in Marlon Brando's Mulholland Drive home on the evening of May 16, 1990, will never be clear, and there's no one left alive to tell the tale. Let's start with who was there. 
Our leading man, Marlon Brando, 66 years old and launching something of a career comeback after sitting out most of the 1980s. Tarita Teripaya, Brando's Tahitian common law wife and mother of two of his children. She was there even though the couple had been separated for over a decade. Their daughter, Cheyenne, 20 years old and pregnant. Dag Drolet, the 23-year-old son of a Tahitian legislator and the father of Cheyenne's baby. And Brando's eldest son, Christian, a high school dropout and failed actor who lived his entire life in the shadow of his father, one of the 20th century's all-time acting greats. Cheyenne and Dag were living together in Tahiti, but their relationship was a mess, like father, like daughter. A car accident the year before left Cheyenne's face disfigured, putting the brakes on her modeling career. Her mental health suffered, and the pregnancy didn't help. Dag was worried Cheyenne was going to hurt herself, but he knew he couldn't keep her and the baby safe on his own. So he encouraged Cheyenne to take her father up on his offer to stay in the house on Mulholland until the baby was born. Cheyenne agreed to go, but only if Dag flew to Los Angeles with her. After a few days in LA, Dag called his mother back in Tahiti from Brando's house. He said he and Cheyenne were still having problems. He gave no indication of when he'd be flying home. Christian Brando was living in a ranch house on Wonderland Avenue that his father owned and rented to him for a nominal sum. Marlon Brando always did his best to make sure Christian was provided for. But everything Christian Brando touched turned to shit. His first marriage fell apart, and then he literally fell out of a tree, which was the end of his tree trimming business. He failed at enough construction jobs to be virtually unhirable in Los Angeles. And despite or because of his father's influence, his film career went nowhere. He was in and out of AA, mostly out, and his house was stocked with an extensive gun collection. On the night of May 16th, Marlon Brando and Tarita stayed home, while Cheyenne, Christian, and Dag went out for dinner and drinks. Several drinks. At some point, when Dag was out of earshot, Cheyenne told Christian that Dag had been smacking her around, even while she was pregnant. After dinner, Cheyenne and Dag headed back to the Brando house. But first, Christian stopped off at his place and grabbed a 45. He was gonna intimidate Dag Drolet, and he may have been out of work and out of love, but he could sure as shit make sure that that motherfucker didn't lay another finger on his sister. According to Christian Brando, when he got back to his father's house, there was a fight. Also according to Christian Brando, during that fight, his 45 accidentally went off. The house on Mulholland was big enough that no one else heard the alleged scuffle but everyone heard the gunshot. Marlon Brando ran into his living room and saw Dag bleeding out. That's when he called 911. He tried to resuscitate Dag with mouth to mouth, but each breath he gave wheezed out of the exit wound oozing from Dag's neck. When the authorities arrived, the Brando family stood together in the living room in stunned silence. The TV was on. Its flickering glow lit the weird scene. Dag Drolet's body was slouched back on the couch like a lazy house guest. One hand held a cigarette lighter. The other was gripping the remote control so tightly that the TV set was flipping through the channels over and over. The cops looked at the body and then they looked at Brando and then they looked at his kids. And then back to the body again. And the whole thing was strange. Someone walked over and turned off the TV. Christian Brando stood by his story that it was an accident. He just wanted to scare the guy. The motherfucker was beating his sister. That's what big brothers were for but the cops didn't find a mark on Cheyenne. And then there was the other thing that Christian said. I was gonna kill that guy, 
I would have hit him in the head with a baseball bat and pulverized him. That wasn't the kind of remark that was going to placate the cops. Neither was the gunshot itself. The entrance wound was in the face, and the exit wound in the neck. It sure seemed like Dag Drolet, a half foot taller than Christian Brando, was sitting down when he got shot. Christian Brando was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. He pleaded innocent, but was denied bail. Letters poured into the judge from Marlon Brando's famous friends. They said Christian was a good boy who would never hurt anyone. Another judge set bail at $2 million. Marlon Brando posted a bond secured by his house on Mulholland. Prosecutors tried to subpoena Cheyenne as a possible witness to the murder, but Marlon Brando put her and her mother on a plane to Tahiti almost immediately after the shooting. A month later, she gave birth to Dag Drolet's son. Without a witness to the killing, the prosecutors couldn't prove premeditation, which meant murder one was off the table. They offered Christian a reduced charge of manslaughter. He accepted and awaited his sentence, completely unaware that the leading role at his sentencing hearing would be played by Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando didn't want to talk about The Godfather. He didn't want to talk about Last Tango in Paris or the Oscars or any of the shit Dick Cavett wanted to talk about. He was evasive. He was mean. Basically, he was behaving like Marlon Brando. But Dick Cavett was a class act. After the interview, he took Brando out to dinner in Chinatown. A paparazzo chased him down the street, shouting at them, asking all the questions Cavett skipped on his show. The hell was the deal with the Native American girl Brando sent to the Oscars in his place? Did he really fuck Maria Schneider up the ass with a stick of butter filming Last Tango? Brando turned around. He planted his feet. He wound up his arm. And then he clocked the guy square in the face. Marlon Brando didn't just play a boxer in On the Waterfront, the 1954 film that earned him his first Oscar win after four straight years of nominations. He trained as a boxer, and he trained hard. Before he broke into movies, when he was being hailed as an American Hamlet in A Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway, Brando spent his off time sparring in the basement of the Barrymore Theater. When he wasn't needed on stage, you could find him mixing it up with a stagehand behind the scenes. So when I say he decked the guy, I mean Marlon Brando laid him the fuck out. The photographer ended up with nine stitches and a metal brace in his jaw. Next time he tried to get a shot off Brando, he wore a football helmet. That's 100% true, look it up. Brando's fingers swelled up like balloons, and he checked into the hospital the next day with an infected hand. And then he paid the photographer 40 grand to keep him from pressing charges. Cost of doing business. It was an explosively violent response to what had been a bizarre year in Marlon Brando's life. It was 1972, and while the Oscar buzz around Brando's performance in The Godfather built to a roar, the actor was busy shooting Last Tango in Paris with the Italian film director Bernardo Bertolucci. And with Brando in Paris, his son Christian was in a boarding school in California. Christian was 13, the only child from Brando's first brief and tumultuous marriage to the actress Anna Cashfi. The couple married in 1957 when they found out she was pregnant. Brando had a previous brush with a shotgun wedding just three years earlier, but that would-be bride get herself a Tijuana abortion rather than be tied down to a notorious womanizer. Anna, though, she stuck it out. 
at least for a while. But by the time Christian Brando was born, the couple had already had enough of each other. Anna said Brando attracted women like shit draws flies, and she was furious when she found out they'd named their son after a French actor who'd been not only Brando's wingman, but also his sometimes lover. The couple divorced a year after that and fought bitterly over custody of Christian. The fight ended when a friend stopped by Anna's house and found Christian sitting by the pool, his mother in the living room, passed out in a pool of her own vomit. Marlon Brando got primary custody. He might have been happier about scoring points over his ex than he was at the realities of raising a kid. When Brando was shooting Mutiny on the Bounty in the early 1960s, he fell in love with a small island in Tahiti. So much in love that he bought it, the whole island. He also fell for one of the local women. Well, probably more than one, and most likely a few of the local men, too. But only one of them ended up as common-law wife and the mother of two more kids. From then on, Brando spent his time either making movies or in Tahiti, leaving Christian in the care of his assistants or in boarding school. Brando was in Paris when 13-year-old Christian set his dorm room on fire. Unable to reach him, the school called Christian's mother and informed her that Christian had been expelled, which is when things very literally went south. Anna Cashvi picked up Christian from school, intending to turn him over to Brando's assistant at the end of the weekend. Now, remember, Marlon Brando had primary custody. Anna was only allowed to spend a few days at a time with Christian, but the kid had a bad cough. Doctors said it was bronchitis. They told Anna to keep him in bed. She called Brando's assistant. Christian was gonna stay in the care of his mother until he felt better. Rather than keeping her son sick in bed, however, Anna and a friend drove Christian across the border to Baja, Mexico, where they rented a cheap motel room. Anna didn't hang around. She left Christian coughing and wheezing in Mexico with her friend and drove herself back to LA. She returned the next day only to find both her friend and Christian were gone. No heads up, no note, no nothing. Anna feared the worst. She went to the Mexican police. She told them her son had been kidnapped. The press jumped on the story immediately. They tracked down Marlon Brando in Paris. He denied that his son had been kidnapped. As far as he knew, Christian was in Mexico on a scuba diving trip with friends, and surely they'd turn up any minute. Meanwhile, on the down low, Brando hired a fleet of private investigators to bulk up the Mexican police's search. Christian was found in a cave outside San Felipe, some three hours south of the U.S. border, with Anna's friend and eight hippies. Christian was pale and feverish. He struggled for breath from the heat of the cave. His bronchitis had turned into bronchial pneumonia, and the hippies claimed Christian's mother promised them $10,000 each to hide the boy for a few days as a fuck you to her ex-husband, Marlon Brando. But when she refused to actually pay them, the hippies' staged kidnapping became a real kidnapping. And this was three years after the Manson murders. If there was one thing a California celebrity should know, it was to be wary of the hippies. But hippie testimony wasn't enough to charge Christian's mother in the kidnapping. However, it was enough to convince a judge to give Marlon Brando not just primary custody, but full custody of their son. He met Christian at LAX and the two flew back to Paris where Christian stayed with him for the last weeks of shooting. Those weeks may have included the day that Brando decided to improvise Last Tango in Paris's most notorious scene. The scene that depicts sexual assault with butter as a lubricant. The butter was Brando's idea, which he discussed with the director that morning. But neither Brando nor Bertolucci bothered to inform Maria Schneider, the 19-year-old actress Brando was sharing the scene with. Years later, this led to a viral rumor that the scene showed an actual rape. 
Schneider said that while the sex was only simulated, her tears and her terror in the scene were very much real, and she never forgave Bertolucci for putting her through it. After the shoot, Marlon and Christian Brando returned to California, to the house on Mulholland Drive. It was part of a sprawling complex on the same property as Jack Nicholson's house, where Roman Polanski would later drug and sexually assault a 13-year-old girl. By 1973, Brando had five acknowledged kids with three women. And by the end of his life, that number would hit 11. His youngest at the time, Cheyenne, was only three. She split her time between the house on Mulholland and Brando's Island in Tahiti, where her mother lived. The Mulholland house featured a rotating cast of Brando's children and lovers. And Christian ended up playing dad for whichever of his half-siblings were around. Teenage Christian became particularly protective of his baby half-sister, Cheyenne. But life as the son of the American Hamlet was never stable. At age 14, plagued by nightmares about the Mexican kidnapping, the hippies in the cave, that fucking heat pressing against his fevered skin and his lungs struggling for air, Christian Brando bought his first gun. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The helicopter sank into the jungle, pressed under the thick humidity of the air by the weight of its cargo. The choppers were on loan to Francis Ford Coppola from Ferdinand Marcos, the brutal and massively corrupt dictator of the Philippines. Depending on the day, the film crew might have access to five of them, or 10, or none if Marcos needed them back to bomb the shit out of the communist insurgents in the South. The film crew was grateful for what they got. The US military had flat out refused to let them use American choppers from the minute they heard what Apocalypse Now was actually about. When Marlon Brando stepped off the helicopter, he was 50 pounds heavier than the last time Francis Ford Coppola saw him. This was after Coppola agreed to pay Brando $3 million for just three weeks of shooting. But scheduling had been a problem. Production was wildly over budget. Brando's people threatened to pull him off the film and keep the money. Coppola talked Brando into staying on the project, but was less than honest about how badly everything was fucked. Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad's novel about the search for a man driven insane by life in the jungle, was cursed when it came to translating it for the silver screen. Orson Welles' first attempt at writing a screenplay was a 184-page adaptation of the 70-page book. RKO shot the project down when Welles said the budget would top a million bucks. He got stuck making a little movie called Citizen Kane instead. Coppola was determined to succeed where Wells had failed. His original plan was to drop his buddy George Lucas and a film crew into the middle of the Vietnam War for a quick and dirty three-week shoot on 16mm, like literally into the middle of the Vietnam War. American film studios might be crazy, but they weren't that fucking crazy. No one was bankrolling a film crew in the middle of an actual war zone. The project was shelved. Coppola came back to it at the end of the 70s, helming it himself and funding it with money he'd made from the success of the Godfather movies. He secured Brando's involvement with a million-dollar down payment, and he cut the deal with Marcos to rent the helicopters for thousands a day, including pilots from the Philippine Army who drew overtime pay. Each day, a different group of pilots showed up, not the guys, for instance, who rehearsed the scene the day before. Days and weeks flew by. Drug use was rampant, LSD, marijuana, cocaine. A shirtless, bearded Francis Ford Coppola rapidly sweated off pounds as he barked orders, trying to keep the production from spiraling into complete chaos. 
Coppola's entire family was in the country with him for the shoot. His wife shot documentary footage of the production and of the locals, and she filmed a group of Filipinos brutally slaughtering a water buffalo. They hacked it apart with machetes until it dropped to the dirt, dead. She showed Francis the footage that night, and he knew it had to be part of the film. He made a deal with the locals to film the next slaughter. He gave no directions, just let the cameras roll as the men butchered the animal. To say it was a wild shoot would be a massive understatement. A typhoon shuttered production for eight days. And then Martin Sheen, the film's protagonist, suffered a massive heart attack. He was so close to death that a Filipino priest pronounced his last rites. For six weeks, Coppola continued shooting without his lead. And after 16 grueling months, after heart attacks and typhoons and slaughtered water buffaloes, this was the end, my friend. But getting the final scenes of Apocalypse Now on film threatened to be the toughest slog of all. Because Francis Ford Coppola went through all that other bullshit just so he could now endure the problem that was Marlon Brando. Make that multiple problems. The first was that Brando was supposed to be playing a half-starved madman. And when he showed up on set, he weighed in at about 300 pounds. And for some reason, he also showed up with a cleanly shaved head. Okay, thought Coppola, I can work with this. I'll make the character a glutton, gorging himself on fruit and meat in every shot. Except Brando was self-conscious about the weight. He refused to do anything that might call attention to it. He would only wear black and demanded he be shot only in shadow. The second problem was that Brando couldn't fucking stand Dennis Hopper, who would agree to do the movie only if he got one line with Brando. Hopper had been in the country for a month and a half working with a team of Green Berets and snorting copious amounts of cocaine when he wasn't making a dent in his never-ending supply of liquor and cheap beer. One thing Hopper hadn't done since he got there, though, was shower. The dude fucking stunk. One of the Green Berets gave Hopper a little red book, a special services guide on tactics, not the kind of thing civilians are supposed to have eyes on. Hopper kept it in his boot. At the first story meeting, tensions were already high between Brando and Coppola. Brando didn't seem to have any sense of who his character was. Hopper tried to lighten the mood. He leaned over to his co-star. One hand reached down and tugged at the laces of his boot. I bet you haven't read the book, Hopper said, talking about the tactic book, a gift from the Green Berets that might help Brando get inspired. Brando flipped his shit. I don't have to take this, he shouted. I have to hear it from this punk. He refused to shoot with Dennis Hopper, refused to even be on set with him. They shot their scenes on separate days. But why did Brando fly off the handle? That's such a harmless comment from Dennis Hopper. Because Brando hadn't read the book. He hadn't read Heart of Darkness, the one fucking thing Coppola had asked him to do before he showed up. Coppola had been giving Brando grief about it from the minute he got off the chopper. Brando thought Hopper was giving him shit for not doing his homework. And not only did Brando not read Heart of Darkness, he hadn't even read the script or what there was of it. And that was the last problem. The scenes Brando was there to shoot hadn't even been written. Apocalypse Now had no ending. Other than that, everything was going great. Rather than pause production to finish the script, Coppola encouraged Brando to improvise all the scenes. For three weeks, cameras rolled as the massive actor, dressed in black and cloaked in shadow, mumbled poetically about war and savagery and the darkness of the human soul. Coppola ended up with over a million feet of film to edit, and it took him two years. Brando, meanwhile, took home three and a half million dollars for 15 minutes of screen time, which would be nothing compared to the $3.7 million plus top billing and a percentage of gross that he got for eight minutes in Superman just a year later. 
Even Christopher Reeve complained about Brando's phone in performance. And Christopher Reeve never said anything bad about anybody. After pulling in massive checks for what amounted to cameo appearances, Marlon Brando returned to the empty house on Mulholland Drive. His performance as a real dad was as phoned in as his role as Superman's absent father. He paid the rent on the cabin in the woods of Washington State where Christian lived with an ever-expanding collection of guns and an ever-expanding mind, courtesy of a steady supply of LSD. He also paid for repair and improvements for the house in Tahiti where his daughter Cheyenne was living with her mother. But he rarely saw either of his children. Before the night in May 1990, when a single gunshot rang out in the house on Mulholland Drive and ripped Marlon Brando's family apart for good. The people in the packed courtroom watched as Marlon Brando squeezed onto the witness stand. He had to turn sideways to get in. Every reporter in Hollywood wanted to see the next great performance from the country's greatest actor. From the looks of Brando, it might be his last. The bailiff asked Brando to swear to God that he was about to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Brando refused. He didn't believe in that shit. He swore on the lives of his children instead including his eldest son sitting across the courtroom. Christian Brando's life was hanging in the balance. He'd pleaded guilty to manslaughter and the killing of his sister Cheyenne's boyfriend, Dag Drolet, and this hearing would determine his sentence. Brando spoke for an hour. He didn't say much about Christian. He talked about his own failures as a father. He said he led a wasted life, and his own children were now paying for the sins of the father. He said none of this would be happening if Christian wasn't his son. Christian Brando's trial was now the Marlon Brando trial. On his final day, the defense had called its star witness. After cataloging his mistakes, Brando turned to the victim's family who had flown in from Tahiti for the sentencing hearing. He apologized to them in perfect French. They glared at him with hatred in their eyes. The American Hamlet's performance was wasted on them. Christian Brando was sentenced to 10 years he served five. While he was in prison, his sister's mental problems spiraled. Hidden away in Tahiti, she was declared unfit to testify at his trial. But once he was sentenced, she spoke to any reporter who tracked her down. She said Marlon Brando neglected her growing up. Then she said he abused her. Then she suggested her father conspired with Christian to murder her boyfriend. Cheyenne Brando was diagnosed with schizophrenia and lost custody of her son. Isolated from friends and family, she hanged herself in 1995, less than a year before Christian was released from prison. Christian never said much about his sister after she died, only that he was a chump for believing her accusations of abuse against her boyfriend on the night of the murder. In 2004, Marlon Brando died at home in the house on Mulholland. His final screen appearance was three years earlier in the music video for Michael Jackson's You Rock My World. Brando and the King of Pop had been friends since the late 70s, and Brando was one of Jackson's guests on stage for his 30th anniversary concerts in New York City in early September 2001. Elizabeth Taylor also made an appearance. On the morning of September 11th, Michael Jackson got a call from so-called friends in Saudi Arabia, telling him America was under attack. Convinced that he personally might be a target, MJ did what any Demerol-addled pop icon would do in that situation. He rented a car, 
picked up Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor from their hotels and drove to Ohio where the trio will be safe from terrorists. Brando annoyed his fellow travelers by insisting they stop at every KFC they passed. In his last days, Marlon Brando was convinced to alter his will, signing over his $20 million estate to a film executive, effectively disinheriting his son, Christian. Christian, meanwhile, was a person of interest in another celebrity murder case. Robert Blake, known to television audiences as the hard-nosed detective Tony Beretta, was charged with murdering his wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley, in 2001. In a pretrial hearing, Blake's attorneys introduced a bizarre alternate theory about the murder. The real killer, they claimed, was Christian Brando. Blake's dead wife had a thing for celebrities. She once said her first daughter was the child of Jerry Lee Lewis, although a DNA test disproved it. She began writing to Christian Brando when he was in prison, and their affair started not long after his release. When Bakley got pregnant, she told both Blake and Christian they were the father. She even named the kid Christian. A paternity test showed the baby was Blake's, but Christian didn't appreciate being drawn into whatever fucked up domestic situation the couple had going on. The defense had a tape of him telling Bakley she was lucky someone wasn't out there to put a bullet in her head. Except that someone had, and Robert Blake's lawyers wanted the jury to believe it was Christian Brando. Christian pleaded the fifth at trial and was never charged. Robert Blake was acquitted on criminal charges but found guilty of wrongful death in civil court. Christian Brando married a woman who claimed without evidence that she was an illegitimate child of Elvis Presley. The marriage ended after a year after Christian was charged with domestic abuse. Cut off from his father's money and kicked out of the house on Mulholland by the people who convinced the dying Marlon Brando to alter his will, Christian was homeless. He contracted pneumonia in 2008 and was admitted to the hospital as quote-unquote indigent. He had no insurance, no money. But while he lay in a coma, his mother, who he hadn't seen in 20 years, argued with the executors of Brando's estate over who would pay for a memorial service. In the end, no one did. Christian Brando was buried without a ceremony. When his mother died a few years later, her last wish was to be buried alongside him. Christian's ex-wife bought the adjacent burial plot to keep his mother from getting her wish. It was a bizarre postscript to the epic tragedy of the Brando family. A story that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.